Good morning. It is a pleasure to see you this morning on this fine Sunday. This third Sunday of Advent, it's wonderful to worship with you today. My name is Jason Abril. I'm the assistant pastor here at Grace. And uh, like I said, this is the third Sunday of our Advent series. We're right in the middle of this uh, series, which is called Christmas in Luke. And in it, we're going through the first two chapters of Luke, and we're looking at the birth narrative, and we're, we're finding out who Jesus is through the eyes of Luke. Last Sunday, we went through the Magnificat, and that's this wonderful song, this prayer that Mary just bursts forth in this effulgent praise of God at the reality that the son she is bearing is the Messiah. This week, we're actually going to be doing the birth itself. We're going to be looking at Jesus being born from Luke chapter 2. So, let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Father, we do thank you for this day of worship, this day that uh, you set aside from before the foundation of the world, for us to gather together as your people and raise up the name of Jesus, our Savior. Jesus, we do thank you for leading us in worship today, and we thank you that you condescended to us. You did not leave us alone and orphans, uh, but instead you came to us. Holy Spirit, we do ask as we worship today, that you be present, that you pull off any blinders that we might have on our eyes, quicken our hearts, make them alive to Christ so that we might see him fully and by seeing him be changed, Lord. Thank you so much. Amen. So, like I said, we're starting off looking at the birth narrative today. And so we're in Luke chapter 2, like I said. And what's interesting about Luke is that Luke, right off, grounds everything that he writes in his gospel in history. Everything that he writes, right at the beginning, he grounds it in history. And it's very important to him to convey that this actually happened. If we look at Luke chapter 1... At his intro into the gospel, we see, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word <clears throat> uh, have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely and for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Right from the beginning, he grounds his gospel in history. And he does so for one purpose, and that's so that the people might have certainty with what they've been taught is actually true, that it actually happened, that it's not a fairy tale, it's not a myth, and he's driving this home. He drives it home throughout the entirety of his gospel, actually. And to this point, we've been given a ton of background about who Jesus is. We've been told about his uh, mother, 
We've been told about his earthly father, Joseph. We've been told about Zechariah and Elizabeth and his cousin, John. We know his family. We know where he comes from. And then now we've come to the point where Luke turns from giving us the background information on who Jesus is to entering us into the time that he's actually born. So let's, let's stand and read this great passage from Luke. This is Luke chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Thus far, the reading of God's word. You may be seated. So again, right away, as Luke discusses the birth of our Savior, he grounds it in history. We see that from all the details that, it, that he gives, that it was <clears throat> at the behest of Caesar Augustus that they actually went to Bethlehem, that they were taking a census, and that census was taken by Quirinius. And when Quirinius was governor, he records all of this, all of this about this lowly birth that our Savior had. Why? Why does he record this for us? Why, other than just history, other than just to ground us in the historical reality that Jesus came as a man, why does he tell us about this? Well, it's because it sets the stage for Jesus' entire life. It sets the stage for his entire ministry. It tells us of what theologians call his humiliation. You know, humiliation in this sense means Jesus' humility, his condescension to us. So today we're going to be looking at three things from the birth narrative about Jesus' humility, his humiliation. We're going to be looking at what it means in particular that Christ is humiliated. We're going to be looking at how we see it here in the text. And then finally, we're going to be asking why this is important to us. So what do we mean when we speak of Christ's humiliation? Well, we mean, like I said, his, his voluntary condescension to us. We mean the, basically the entirety of his life, his whole life on earth, from the time that he was conceived to the time that he died until he was resurrected, that is his humiliation. And it speaks to his, his humanity. It speaks to his humility. The classic text that speaks to this, Paul says this. It's in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And all of that, all of that statement by Paul, that captures what we mean by Christ's humility, by his humiliation. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says it like this. It says, wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? The answer is, Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born, and that in a low condition, made under the law to undergo the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, the cursed death on the cross, in being buried and in continuing under the power of death for a time. Now, there's a lot in the Westminster Shorter Catechism there. Like, I mean, and that's normal. You know, they try to pack everything possible into one question so that we learn all of it. But let's unpack it just a little bit. And we'll come back to each of these separately later on. But to start out with, he says that he was born, that he took on flesh, that he was born of a virgin, that he took on our humanity, that part of that is his humiliation, is his condescension to us, that he didn't stay remote, he didn't stay in heaven. No, instead, he voluntarily descended. And when he descended, he did so because he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And so he was born. He was born as a man. And even though as the son of the father, the eternal son, the God of the universe, even though he deserved every, every glory that might be given to him on earth, he actually, he wasn't given any of that. No, he was born into a low condition. He had no pomp, no circumstance for his birth. No, he wasn't born in a palace. He was born in a stable. He was made to undergo the miseries of this life. That's that he actually experiences the misery. He's truly human, and he truly experiences our world as we experience it. He undergoes the wrath of God. He takes God's wrath for sin on our behalf. He experiences that for us so that we will never have to. The curse of death on the cross, he became a curse for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. He was buried like all of us will be buried. He died. And he went into the ground and he continued under death for a time. That is, there was a period of time between his death and between his resurrection where he wasn't bodily raised. And we will all experience that unless Jesus comes back right now. No, his humiliation is that he identifies with us at every point of what it means to be human. And that's what it means that Christ Excuse me. That's what it means that Christ was humiliated. So where do we see it in the text? Well, some of the places, of course, are quite obvious. Given what we've learned about what it means for him to be humiliated, if we look at verse 7, we see she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them at the inn. 
First off, that he was born in the first place. That's, that's part of his humiliation because it's part of his condescension, part of, who it, <clears throat> part of who he is as he comes to us, that he actually takes on our humanity, even though he doesn't have to. He's not duty-bound to. He took on flesh and everything that it means to be human. And one can hardly think of this a lower condition than being born in a stable. You know, a place where they kept animals. He wasn't even, didn't even have the dignity of being born in an inn. No, he was turned away from the inn. And even more than that, he didn't have a crib. He didn't have a crib board. They had a manger. And of course, when we think of a manger, we think of a, a little feeding trough, an animal, and that's, that is what it is, but in general, wood would have probably been too expensive back then. You know, it was a rare commodity. People didn't build mangers out of wood at this time, so it wasn't like he was put in a little bassinet full of hay. No, it was a hole in the ground. It was a hole in the ground filled with straw, maybe. That's where he was put. No palatial bed, no nothing. He was born in Bethlehem. You know, this is not so obvious why it's part of his humiliation, but he's born in Bethlehem. Well, where is Bethlehem? Where is, you know, in relation to Nazareth, where they were coming from? It was about 100 miles away. He, wasn't, he didn't have the dignity of being born in his own home, around family. No, his parents had to hoof it and go all the way to Bethlehem, a hundred miles while Mary was very pregnant. Not only that, we get here in, uh, in verse 5, 4 and 5, talking about Joseph. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, the town of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed. That is, he was born to a woman who wasn't married. He was born to Mary before Joseph and Mary had actually become married. That's when they went up. And that would have been a stain on, on his uh, character in that society for the rest of his life. He did not have a respectable birth. There's also this implicit contrast here with Jesus and Caesar Augustus. Now, because we don't know our history very well, because we've kind of gotten away from studying a lot of ancient history, this doesn't jump out to us, but it really would have been very prominent to the people of this time because they knew who Caesar Augustus was. We have a vague recollection of who he is. But Caesar Augustus, he was the first Roman emperor. He was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. He took power and he expanded out Rome like no one else. And as he expanded out Rome, he actually took on heirs. Quite deserved in some respect. But in other respects, not so much. He actually called himself the Son of God, whereas Jesus was the Son of God. 
We're told that previously in the text and in chapter 1 that we read that Jesus was the Son of God. He was taking Jesus' title from him. He actually said that he was the Savior of the world. And in fact, there's a, a tablet in Halicarnassus, this mausoleum, that actually says Caesar Augustus, Savior of the world. And yet Jesus was the Savior. He was the king of kings. That's literally what an emperor was. Somebody who reigned over all of these small kings. And yet, Jesus was the king of kings. He was taking these titles from Jesus. And the upstart here, Caesar Augustus, even orders his parents, Jesus' parents, to be counted so they could be taxed. That's what the census was for. The census was to, <clears throat> for most people, it wouldn't have been too much of an inconvenience, honestly, because they would be dwelling in the city of their ancestors. But for his parents, it was a huge inconvenience. They had to travel 100 miles to a town where they didn't really know anybody, all so that they could be counted, so that they could be taxed by Caesar. Yeah. The Savior who, by all rights, should have been heralded by every person, who should have been heralded by the animals, who should have been heralded by the very ground, by the rocks. No. That Savior was in a strange town, in a strange stable, because he was turned away from an inn. And he was placed in a manger, a hole in the ground, in order to keep him. So why is this important? Why is Luke telling us this? Why, why focus on the humiliation? Well, there are many reasons, but for starters, it tells us who Jesus really is. It tells us who he is in profound ways. What do I mean by that? It tells us about his character. Again, this contrasts a little bit with Caesar here. Caesar is big, he's powerful. You know, he issues decrees and everybody obeys. His decrees are law, but he exalts himself when he does it. Even though he's a mere creature, he's made himself out to be equal with God. This very thing that the Pharisees accused Jesus of later on, Caesar is actually committing here. He makes himself to be equal with God while Jesus humbles himself. Although he is Lord of the universe, Although there can be no name higher than his, he humbles himself. And because he humbles himself, he will be exalted. If we go back to the Magnificat that I talked about earlier, it's in Luke 1, verse 50, 50 and 51. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And we see it right there, this foretelling that Caesar himself, because he's exalted himself, is going to be brought down low. And Jesus, because he's humbled himself, will actually be raised up in great power and honor and glory. And we see that in Paul's proclamation. All, you know, going back to Philippians chapter 2. When we finish that out, 
Paul says, Therefore God has highly exalted him, that is Jesus, and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Caesar is brought down low. Jesus is brought up high. Isn't it all also interesting here that Jesus is born in Bethlehem? Why? You know, Luke doesn't draw this out very much. We see it a little bit in Matthew. In Matthew, we get this quotation that we read for our Advent reading from Micah. Okay, and I'll, I'll read it again. But Luke alludes to this, and this would have been jumping off the page to the people reading this for the first time. Micah says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from, on, <clears throat> is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who was in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. So, why Bethlehem? Well, ultimately, it's Bethlehem because that's what's been decreed by God. But in the text, we see that Caesar actually orders them back to Bethlehem. Of course, not particularly by name, but he orders them to go to their, to their city that they have their heritage. And so, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Why? Because Caesar Augustus ordered it. But why did Caesar Augustus order it? Because all the way back in Micah, God foretold and actually prophesied that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Caesar is actually doing God's bidding. He's under God's providential hand, and he's being guided in doing exactly what needs to happen for Jesus to be born where he is. Not only that, this is the same Jesus that in Hebrews chapter 1, we're told that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Even in the manger, Caesar can only do Jesus' bidding. It also makes him a legitimate savior. Jesus' humiliation, his condescension to us, it's all wrapped up in what it means for him to be a man. It's all wrapped up in what it means for him to be God. Because in, in order to <clears throat> suffer under the humiliation, in order to condescend to us, he actually has to be God. Otherwise, if he were just a man, there would be no humiliation. There would be no condescension. But he also has to be a man. Because if he's not a man then there is no condescension. It didn't happen. In Hebrews chapter 2 says this. 
talking about Jesus. Starting in verse 14, it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not to angels that he, it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And so, we see here that the author of Hebrews, when he looks at Jesus' humiliation, and he looks at Jesus taking on flesh and dwelling amongst us, he actually says that this is what makes Jesus a legitimate Savior. That Jesus couldn't be a legitimate Savior without both being God and man. That he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. That he had to be fully human, fully God. And that is the only way. So what does this mean for you? Well, for starters, it means that you can have true fellowship with God. You see... When the fall happened, one of the things that was lost was the true fellowship that we had with the, with the Lord. You know, we were in this intimate community with Him. Adam and Eve, you see that all the way back in Genesis. They are dwelling with God and they're walking with Him in the cool of the day. They have this face-to-face community with Him. And that was lost. And more than, more than that, more than it just being lost. We of our own nature have no power to restore that ourselves. We can't reach up to heaven. Going back to the Kevin DeYoung quote that Wilson read all the way back at the beginning of the service. It says, we must always remember that our union with Christ is possible because the Son's descent to earth and not because of our ascent to heaven. And this is the basis of our union with Christ. The basis of our union with Christ is Christ's union with us in the incarnation. That it's, it's Christ that actually has to condescend to us. We can't do it ourselves. And that's a good, good thing. It's a good thing that we can't do it ourselves because if we tried we would mess it up. We are powerless to do what Jesus has done. But Jesus, everything is possible for him. He has actually achieved salvation for you. And the reason why is because he humiliated himself. Now, what else? What else does it mean for you? You know, we just sang in this past song right before the sermon, let all mortal flesh keep silence. There's this line in it that is just so incredibly profound. And it's talking about Jesus as the light of light who descends from heaven. And the author here says, as the light of light descendeth, 
from the realms of endless day that the powers of hell may vanish and the darkness clears away. That's a powerful line because that is actually what we see when Jesus descends. When he descends, the light of the world uh, descends to earth. And as he descends, all of the powers of hell begin to dissipate. They all melt away in his presence. And that means that if you are with him, if you have been united with him, then the powers of hell have no hold on you. If you are a Christian, you are united with Christ forever. And you are fully and finally separated from your sin and any power that, that Satan might have over you. What else does it mean? It means that salvation has come. It means for us that salvation is possible. That true fellowship can be restored. And all because Jesus has made it happen. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for this word that you have given us through your servant, Luke. We thank you that he did not count this too small a thing to be written down, but instead he decided that it was important for us to know, and important for us to know because it's important for us to know the lengths in which Jesus went in order to claim us as his own. Lord, as we turn today um, and we continue worshiping you, as we exit today, we do ask that you build us up in that sure knowledge that we are Christ. And we are Christ not because of anything that we have done, not because we have ascended into heaven, no, but because Christ himself has descended to us. And in descending to us, he has united us to himself forever. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied yourself. Being born in the likeness of men, we thank you that you are humble, that your humility drove you also that you might claim us as your people. Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we ask that you further bind us closer and closer every day, every moment to our great Savior. That everything we do, all of our thoughts, all of our deeds, every word we speak, let it nothing but draw us closer to our Savior. 